There was a fall that we read about. And um, before I get into the passage, though, I, I want to acknowledge something that I, that I think is a family matter. Um, and it's a family matter because uh, we, we have, uh, in this week, I have felt a sense of sadness. And part of that sadness is because one of our church members passed away. We prayed for Gina last week. Uh, Gina, um, she went to be with the Lord Wednesday evening at about 630 and, um, and, uh, her husband sent me a text and he said it reminded him of how the Lord passed when the thunders shook and the winds arose and God took his son. He said it was a reminder of God's presence in the midst of their pain. And, uh, I thought that to be a fitting, a fitting work. And we know that even though we prayed for Gina's healing, that the ultimate healing that she's experienced comes from the salvation she received in Jesus Christ, where God brought an end to her sin. And he brought her into his presence. And now she worships him in eternal bliss. And one day, by the grace of God, we too will join her. So would you join me in praying for her family? Father, thank you for the incredible privilege of serving alongside of this woman Father God, for the incredible privilege of watching you work in her life, for the incredible privilege of watching you working through her life. God, she meant so much to this church and still does. And we ask God that you would be present with the family in their tears and that God, you would give them answers to their deepest questions. And we know those answers come through your son, Jesus Christ, who was crucified that is an answer to every pain, every discomfort, every broken feeling that we have, Lord. We know that your answer is the satisfaction that we find in Christ Jesus. And the church says, Amen. Amen. So the book of Esther is a curious book. If you have joined us from day one, and maybe you've been reading this on your own, you you notice that there is no mention of God, not even one time in the book. There's no mention of prayer. There's little hints of spirituality, but you really have to search hard to find it. And and you wonder if it's even really there. But when we get to a chapter like we get to today, you, you can't help but see that even though God's name isn't mentioned, he's written all over the pages. That somehow there's a there's a force that's greater than the force of Xerxes. Somehow there's a there's a, a comfort and a care that exists even when the pride and arrogance of Haman leads to a murderous decree. God is at work on behalf of his people. God is at work on behalf of caring for them. God is at work in providing for them. God is at work for their deliverance. And so the the work of God in the book of Esther is is even though it's curiously absent, it's inescapable. And I want to catch you up just briefly with the book. Esther was written about 2,500 years ago. She was part of the third generation of Jews that were exiled from Israel into Babylon. And now Persia was over over all of the empire, all of the known land at that time was under the control of Persia, under the control of King Xerxes. King Xerxes 
needed a wife. His former wife was not sufficient because she didn't obey him. And so he disposed of her and and they brought together a queen finding cabinet that would look for all the young and beautiful virgins of the land and they would bring them into the king's harem where they would participate in a year-long beauty contest. There was a beautification thing that took place where they went to the local Ulta store and they found the right cosmetics and 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 then after a year the the king would begin to 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 begin to spend the night with each of these women and then one of them would become his queen and the others would be brought into his harem and and when you hear the story it's like a bad reality tv show isn't it these these women were taken for the purpose of the king so that the king could do to them as he pleased because it was the king's right it was the king's power and the king could do it and it kind of tells you the plight not only of Esther this young Jewish girl who lost her father and mother at an early age she was adopted by her older cousin Mordecai she was living under the Persian rule of the Persian Empire. You see not only the plight of Esther, but you see all the plights of the Jews in Persia at that time. They're, they're under the control of a foreign dictator who is anti-God. And so it was living in that world. And Mordecai, her father, he says to her, before it all starts, he says, conceal your faith. And you kind of wonder why Mordecai might tell her to do that. Because as a Jew, you would not conceal your faith. A Jew, you, you, you obeyed the law of God. And, and, and it, was, it was hard to conceal your faith because you had to submit to the dietary requirements. In effect, Mordecai was telling her, don't, don't be a Jew in the king's court. And you wonder why Mordecai would have said that. And then you see this man, Haman, begin to emerge. And, and he's the right-hand man to the king. He's the king's prime minister. And, and Haman is, is a man who, who has this insatiable lust for power, insatiable lust for people's respect. And so Haman gets power, and as Haman is going in and out of the king's gate where Mordecai is, because Mordecai has been at the king's gate in order to hear how his daughter Esther is doing, in order to get word on her. But as Haman is going in and out of the king's gate... Those, bow, the, those around bow down to him as a matter of respect, but Mordecai refuses and Haman begins to notice and so does those who are in his entourage. And they ask Mordecai why he won't do it and Mordecai continues to refuse and it starts to burn Haman and Haman's anger becomes murderous and a- Haman takes his murderous anger to the king with a proposal This is in chapter 3. He says, there's some people living in your land who it doesn't profit you to keep them around. They don't obey your laws. They're different from everybody else. He says, I'll put 10,000 talents of silver into your war chest. And I'll replace the money that has been lost from your recent battle with Greece. You, You don't see that in the text, but if you read the history books, you see that 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 Xerxes was at war with Greece and he had suffered some pretty bad defeats there. And so money was a way that his ears began to perk off and say, perk up and say, I'm listening. And so Haman gives that proposal to the king, not even telling him that it's the Jewish people. And the king sounds, says it sounds good. And so he gives him his signet ring 
And he says, you can have my stamp of approval. Do what you will. And it's done. The law is given. The unchangeable law of the Medes and Persians says that every Jew on the 12th month of Adar is to be slaughtered. That there is to be no survivors, women and children included. And so you have this Haman-like Adolf Hitler figure in charge of Persia. And the king is doing everything that he says because he's just listening to what profits him. And that's the plight that the Jews are in at that time. And Mordecai, Mordecai is at the king's gate weeping. He's got sackcloth and ashes. He goes to the, the, the eunuchs that were there to, to help Esther. And he tells the eunuchs, send word to Esther. That now's the time to tell the king. That she is of the Jewish people. And to plead not only for her life, but for the life of her people. Now's the time, Esther. Share your faith. And Esther sends word back and says, I can't do that. If I were, if I were to do that, I would be killed. Because no one could stand before the king to even give this request. Because if I stand before the king to give this request, and he doesn't extend, extend his scepter to me, then my, then my life would be taken from me. And Mordecai responds again. He says, Esther, I believe that if, if help does not come from the Jews, from you, it will come from another place. But he says to her, he says to her, who knows? Maybe you're here for such a time as this. And then Esther makes a decision that she is going to go before God for the sake of the Jews being saved. I mean, go before the king. He thought he was God at that time. Uh, go before the king for the sake of the Jews being saved. And as she decided that, she said, if I perish, I perish. In other words, God will, God's will be done. And then Esther has the king before him. He does extend the scepter to her, sparing her life. And it's time for her to make the request and she makes the request, but the request that she makes is, is not for her life and the life of the Jews. No, she actually invites the king to a banquet. She says, King, my request is that you would come to a banquet with me, bring Haman, and then I'll give you my request. And so the king and Haman go to the banquet and they're drinking wine and they're enjoying the feast. And the king says again to Esther, what is your request? I'll, I'll give it to you even up to half of my kingdom. And Esther delays again. She says, tomorrow, come to another feast that I've prepared for you tomorrow. And, and there I, I will give you my request, I promise. And that night, Haman's got a little pep in his step. He's feeling good. He's right next to the king. He's the only one that's been invited to this party. And he's leaving and he's full of joy. And then he sees that Jew, Mordecai, who refuses to bow down to him. And he does it again. And so he goes home to his Facebook group and he complains he says, I'm a man of wealth. I'm a man of many sons. I'm a, well, I'm a man who has the king's ear. I'm next to him. And why am I not happy? And it's because this man Mordecai won't bow down to me. It's that this man Mordecai refuses to honor me. And so his wife says to him, I've got an idea. Haman, why don't you build a 75 foot stake in our backyard? And tomorrow, 
talk to the king about your problem and have Mordecai impaled on the stake so that way tomorrow night you can go to the feast with a happy heart, right? Sounds good. Haman says, it is. It does sound really good. So that night they're building a stake and as God would have it, the king cannot sleep. I want to stop right here for a moment and ask you the question. Have you ever thought that you are in control of your life? Have you ever thought that? Anybody ever thought that? Just maybe one time or another. Anybody? Let's, let's see a show of hands here. A few of us maybe thought we were in control of our lives, right? We thought we were in control. I, I was at a, um, a kid's field trip on Friday. I realized I was not in control of my life on the kid's field trip, by the way. Uh, we, uh, we were with 13 kids at Fun Spot. It was the end of the year, perfect attendance field trip uh, for the semester. My kids actually did not go to school every day, but for this semester, they were bribed with Fun Spot. And if they were there from the beginning of the year until now, they got to go to Fun Spot. And so me and my wife, I, I, this is the first field trip I, went, I decided to go on. It was on a Friday, my day off. And I was like, Fun Spot, I like go-karts, let's do it, Okay. 13 kids was my list from kindergarten to third grade. Oh, maybe I'm second guessing this. Um, I, I couldn't play golf though because it started raining a little bit later. Uh, however, the rain did hold off for us to get a few rounds of go-kart racing in, which was awesome. Uh, so anyway, the, the kids, um, none of them are tall enough to ride the go-karts. Uh, they have to ride on the double go-kart with, you know, a, a person, like a, an adult, if you want to call it that, um, a chaperone. And so I go with the kids uh, on the go-kart, and, and we go one at a time. It, it's awesome, by the way. Like, I, I get to ride the go-kart eight times around that deal. It's, it's great. And, and, and so I, I see, I think I have a picture here. I, I see the go-kart when I get up there. And, and any, anybody see what's wrong with that picture? There's two steering wheels. How do you got, I'm going to have Lily next to me with a steering wheel on a go-kart. That, that's ridiculous. And so I, I, actually, I actually like get on my steering wheel and I start turning. I'm like, okay, that's working. And then I go over to Lily's and I start turning. I'm like, oh, thank God. Oh, thank God. It's, it's, it's not working. Like there's only one that can control it. And so actually the first person I took on the, on the go-kart wasn't Lily. It was her friend Eternity. And Eternity sat next to me. And Eternity says to me, she says, can I drive? I say, you better believe it. You can drive. Yes. <laughs> and so we get on the go-kart. And Eternity's having a blast, man. I'm turning right. She's turning left. And we're just having a wonderful time. And at the end of the time, she says, did I do a good job? You did great. You did great, Eternity. Wonderful. And then, I kid you not, every time I got on the go-kart with another kid, they asked me the same question. Can I drive? Absolutely, you can drive. And then we go again and again and again. And they felt really good about themselves, and they did a great job. All they had to do was sit in the passenger seat and pretend like they were in control. Actually, they really felt like they were in control. But I was in control. And isn't it the way that our lives go when we think we're in control? That somehow we think that we're in the driver's seat and that we're the ones calling directions. But ultimately, ultimately, friends, do you know that God's will can't be thwarted? Do you know that nothing can get in the way of God's will being done? And that even though we make decisions, like Esther made a decision, that underlying that decision 
is the will of God that works in all things for God's glory and our good. And so while we think we're in the driver's seat, ultimately it's God that's in control, moving all things in accordance with his plan and his purposes. And that cannot get in the way. The decisions we make, the things that we do, cannot get in the way of God's will being done as Jesus even prays it on earth as it is in heaven. And that although we think that we're driving the car, God is the one that calls the shots. This is the romance of God's providence. The romance of God's providence. I say the word romance of God's providence because God's providence is not detached from our reality. We often think that we're like God's pawns in a chess match sometimes. If God's sovereign and in all control, I just kind of feel detached from that. I feel like I'm just his pawn to, to move me where he wants. But, but do you know that God's sovereignty includes his loving care of every single one of his children? That just because God is in control of all things and working all things in accordance with his will, that, that God is also concerned of your good in every single decision that he has ever made, his concern is for you and not against you. And so where God is moving, he's moving in a miraculous way, listen, to draw you to himself, to bring you to himself, no matter what, in death, in life, in sickness, in health, in the things that we went through this week with Gina. It's not God saying, I'm out of the picture. It's God saying, I'm smack dab in the middle of the tears, crying with you. I'm at work to accomplish a plan that's bigger than you can see. J. Vernon McGee says, Providence means that the hand of God is the glove of human events. When God is not at the steering wheel... He's the backseat driver. So now you have to like backseat drivers, by the way, because God is a backseat driver. He's the coach who calls the signals from the bench. Providence is the unseen rudder on the ship of state. God is the pilot at the wheel during the night watch. You kind of wonder who's the one flying the plane when everybody else is sleeping. Well, God It says in the book of Hebrews, in Jesus is upholding the universe by the word of his power. In Colossians, it says that in him all things hold together. In Romans, it says from him and through him and to him are all things. And to him be the glory in the church and throughout all generations in Christ Jesus. And the church says, amen. Amen. God's in complete control and he's working all things according to his glory and your good. And that's the romance of God's providence. And and the curious thing that happens here in Esther is not that Esther made a decision or not that Mordecai made a decision or not that Haman is an idiot or not that the king is a ruthless man. The, The key here is that the king has insomnia. He has a sleepless night. And they hadn't invented Tylenol PM at that point of history. There's no thing called melatonin. There's no young living sleep oil for his forehead that you could put also behind his ears that'll make him go to sleep that night. And so the best thing to knock the king out is the book of memorable deeds. 
It's like the, reading the minutes from a board meeting. It's boring. I mean, whenever I struggle to fall asleep, I, I pull up the Kindle on my iPad and I find the most boring book that I could possibly read. And then before you know it, the iPad hits me in the forehead and I say, okay, it's time for bed. Right? This is what's happening to the king. He's like, get me something that's going to put me to sleep. And so he's reading the, the book of memorable deeds. And, 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 and as God, only God could have it, the name Mordecai comes up. Mordecai is being talked about in another part of the city and there's a, a, a stake that's being erected to see his body impaled on it. But here we see that Mordecai at the end of chapter 2 saves the king's life because there's these two thugs that are trying to kill the king and Mordecai averts the assassination by telling the queen what's going to happen and then the, these, two, these two men who are trying to assassinate him are killed and the king is saved and it seems to be forgotten. It's like, why didn't God come through with Morde- for Mordecai then? But here it is again where Mordecai comes up five years later as the king is trying to go to sleep. And the king says, whatever happened to that guy, Mordecai? Nothing. Nothing? We didn't do anything for Mordecai? No, king, we didn't do anything for Mordecai. Now, now this was a pretty important thing. The king had to reward those who protected his life because if he didn't, people wouldn't say anything about the assassination attempts and things like that. So the king had to lavishly, it was like winning the lottery. If you were able to, to stop an assassination against the king, you would be given some kind of governorship, some kind of palace, some kind of royalty because the king really, it was a matter of his own self-preservation. And so the king's like, how did this escape me? How did this escape us? What should I do for Mordecai? And the next morning, Haman is coming in all jolly, thinking he's going to tell the king about Mordecai and get him impaled on the stake. And, 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 and the king Xerxes is there. And as Haman comes through the door, he says, Haman, I'm so glad you're here. What should we do for the man the, man the king delights to honor? What should we do? And Haman says, oh, oh. Who would you like to honor more than me? Thinking that he's the one that the king delights to honor. And he says, no, no, Haman, come on. What would you like to do for the man the king delights to honor? And he says, well, why don't, why don't we, we put him on the king's horse? Give him the king's robe. Give him the king's crown. Give him the most powerful servant in the, in the king's court. And have the servant take him around the city of Susa, declaring this is the man the king delights to honor. This is the man the king delights to honor. You see that Haman is reading himself into this request. Haman, with his insatiable desire for power, has one way to go, and that's up. And Haman's next move is to be be the king. And Haman's thinking, this is what I would really like. And then the king says to Haman, that sounds like a great idea. Go find Mordecai and do it. (laughs) It's a complete reversal. It's It's a complete reversal because... Mordecai was supposed to be killed at this time. And here Haman goes down to the gate and you could picture him dragging the the horse down and he's got the robe and the crown on his on his arm and he's got a frown on his face. And he says, where's Mordecai? Where is he? Mordecai, get on the horse, put this on. And then Mordecai is taking him around the city of Susa, shouting the words, This is the man the king delights to honor. This is the man the king delights to honor. This is the man the king delights to honor. It's like an episode of Roadrunner with Wile E. Coyote, man. It just is not happening today. 
And this is the beginning of the Haman and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Right? It's a bad day for Haman. And it's a day, though, that we see that God works in the rather ordinary things to do extraordinary things for his people. Do you hear me when I say that? The turn of events that happens in the Jews and in Esther's life for the people of God that has us here today, the turn of events happen with a very ordinary thing where God shows us his extraordinary love. Think about it for your life. I I came up here to Orlando to be a student at UCF. We used to call it You Can't Finish in those days. And I came here to party with my roommates and just live the good life. That was what I came here for. I I wanted to live the life of the college kids and I I wanted to suck it up. But then a few months later, I found myself being baptized in a hotel conference room pool saying, I want to live my life for Jesus. And I met my wife at our church. And I had three beautiful kids at our church. And it all happened where my decision was overruled by God's. Xerxes' decision was overruled by God's. Haman's decision was overruled by God's. Esther couldn't have wrote a story this good, nor could Mordecai, nor could you write the story about your life the way God wants to write it. What was it for you? If I were to pull the memorable, the memorable deeds, the chronicles of your life, where would we see God at work in the ordinary events doing extraordinary things, friends? You are here because of the the romance of God's providence that he has wooed you to himself. And that's an inescapable reality. We have life and breath this morning to worship King Jesus. And this is, this is what God delights to do in his children. This is what God delights to do in you and me. Karen Job says this, she says, our God is so great, so powerful. That he can work without miracles through the ordinary events of billions of human lives through the millennia of time to accomplish his eternal purposes and ancient promises. God delivered an entire race of people in Persia because the king had a sleepless night. Because a man would not bow down to his superior and because a woman woman found herself taken to the bedroom of a ruthless man for a night of pleasure. How inscrutable are the ways of our Lord. As Paul says in Romans, God's paths are beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? This is the way of our mighty and majestic king, our mighty and majestic ruler. In verses 12 through 14 of chapter 6, we read of the transition continuing. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all of his friends everything that happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, 
you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. You, you know, they, they, they know a little something of God's protection of his people. If Haman's a Jew and he's been exalted in this way, you're going to fall. His Facebook group just dissed him, man. They just left him. His wife included just left him in the dust. And then before he could even get a tear shed from his eye, the eunuchs come and say, okay, king, let's go to the feast. Think about it. He wanted to go to that feast with with Mordecai dead. And then he goes to the feast where Mordecai is exalted. It's been a very bad, terrible, horrible, very bad day for Haman. And this is just the beginning. The next part of this passage, we see the revelation, the revelation. God's truth is revealed. God's truth is revealed. When God's truth is revealed, things happen. When God's truth is revealed, things begin to change. Things begin to shift. When God's truth is revealed, he begins to move in in powerful ways that have been previously un seen. Many of us find and see people suffering injustice in the world because because the simplicity of the truth has not been revealed. Anybody ever seen that in in the world? That, that, That people are suffering under the yoke of falsehood and bondage all because of a lie. And then somehow God's truth comes in, invades that space. And what happens? Freedom. We see it in slavery. We see it in brokenness. We see it in hurt. Freedom comes when God's truth is revealed. And, and, and that's what happens when Esther steps into her identity as a child of God. Is There's a freedom that comes over her life. And, and you, you see that picked up here as you look at chapter 7 verse Two, and on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be f- fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight. Do you, you see her humility continued in the king? Do you see her humility? Now, now l- little thing about King Xerxes is he's not a nice, soft, cozy teddy bear. Okay? Herodotus, who was the historian of that time period, gave some history of Persia. And he recounts a story where a a man who had donated a large sum of money and a large sum of military men, Mike, to the king's army, had a simple request of the king. He had four sons who who were about ready to go to battle. And so he had this one simple request, let my oldest son come home. So that my name could continue. So that my heritage could continue. That's a pretty simple request, right? Anybody with a reasonable mind would say, okay, here, here's your one son. Take him. Well, the king wanted to, him to know that that request was unreasonable. So he had his son cut in half. And he divided him in such a way that the army walked through his, his body that was split in half. That was a real story of King Xerxes. So... If there's a little fear in Esther, you might understand it. <laughs> if, you, if she's got a little bit of, of, of tickle in her belly and she's a little nervous, you, you, you can see why. Then Queen Esther answered, If I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold 
and I and my people are to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we have been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman, this Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Now, now I want us to know something about about the truth that's being revealed, is that she revealed the truth. But but do you know that King Xerxes wasn't innocent in it? He was a ruthless king who used and abused the people of God. And there was not a complete doing of justice that took place at that time as a result of the truth being said. But, but do you know that God's will was accomplished? And God's will was accomplished because the annihilation of the Jews was diverted. Because Haman was brought to justice before the wrath of God. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against, un, all, un, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You know, Haman suppressed the truth by his pride. Haman pre- suppressed the truth to his own folly. One thing in the world he could not get, and that thing became something that over took him and his folly ended him. Haman was done because of his own foolish pride and the wrath of God burned against Haman. And it's in our own pride that our unrighteousness is a suppression of the truth where we seek to refuse God. It's not that we don't know the truth. It's that we don't want to live it out. And so what do we do? We suppress it. And thus, with our own lives, Haman, notwithstanding, no human being can be put in a different category. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned like Haman has. We all deserve the stake. We all deserve Haman's penalty. But yet, God spares us. Why? Why? You know there was a stake that was built for Mordecai? And Mordecai didn't go on the stake. It has Mordecai's name on it. But it was Haman that went on the stake. Do you know that that there was another cross that was built that had a man's name that, that, that Barabbas was supposed to be crucified on? But instead of Barabbas being crucified on it, the innocent man was? The prideful, the wicked Barabbas who was brought before the jeering crowd and they said, they said, would you want Barabbas or do you want Jesus to live? And the crowd cheered and mocked Jesus and they said, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. And that day, the prideful, arrogant man, Barabbas, who deserved the just penalty for his sin was set free and the innocent Jesus who had no sin was slaughtered. It was a picture of the cross belonged to me. That was my cross. But Jesus took it. Jesus took it. For the wages of sin is death. That's the unchangeable law of God. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord.
For God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That, that we deserve the cross, and that Christ was put on it, and he was punished in our place, and he's the one who absorbed the wrath of God. You deserve Haman's death, but you got Mordecai's life. That's the power of the gospel. You deserve a death like Haman. I deserve a death like Haman. But Jesus Christ lavished his mercy upon an undeserving sinner to give me God's amazing grace. It's not, it's not an okay grace. It's not a mediocre grace. It's not a grace that's just all right. It's an amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. The eyes of my heart have been opened to my folly. And now I see the beauty of God's only son shed on the cross. There's irony in this story, and the irony in this story is one where we read the memorable deeds of God, and we see the work of Christ, and we see the God who made an end to all my sin. Do you, do you go to bed without realizing that at night? I hope the king keeps you awake. I hope you suffer some insomnia so that you'll never forget that. I hope that there's nights where your conscience is not... It, 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 is not comforted because your conscience doesn't find its satisfaction in Jesus and God makes you restless for his love. You need that. I need that. We hate it, don't we? We just want to live lives our own. Like, like we're in the go-kart on the other side and, and, and we're turning left while God's turning right. But God's saying, I'm, I'm taking you with me the whole way home. The whole way home. I'm taking you with me. Remember the story where Jesus is on the boat and, and there's a storm that comes. And he says to the disciples before they leave, we're going to get to the other side. We're going to get on the boat. And we're going to get to the other side. He means that, by the way. He means I'm going to take you to the other side. And then this storm comes and Jesus is in the boat and he's sleeping. How dare Jesus be sleeping in the middle of the storm and the disciples are freaking out. They think their lives are going to be over. They think it's done, game over. And one of them wakes up Jesus frantically and says, Jesus, there's a storm. And Jesus rebukes his disciples and then he proceeds to go up to the, he proceeds to go up to the, to the boat deck and he rebukes the wind of the, in the rain and the waves and it all calms and Jesus tells his disciple, in that story that he is both the storm and the refuge that God will allow the storms to come to say that he is the one that brings his wrath but the same God who brings the storms is the same refuge that he offers for your protection against it Jesus is enough and we come to this place with that single truth he's enough he's enough for God made him who knew no sin, to be sin, so that in him I might become the righteousness of God. My sin was put upon him. He was punished in my place. And I received the life that he gave me in Christ Jesus. And the church says, amen. Father, thank you. 
thank you. It's good enough. You've done it. You've, you, you, God, you can keep, keep crushing our pride, Lord. Make us uncomfortable. God, cause us to read your word and your memorable deeds. And know, God, that this life is not all about me, but this life is about your kingdom, your glory, your redemption. God, just as you saved the Jews 2,500 years ago, you are bringing salvation today. Your salvation reigns and you are victorious and you are glorious, Lord. And Father, as we take communion, we do so realizing that it was not our body that was broken, that it was not our blood was shed, but God, we feast on your work. We feast on it. God, you satisfy our hungry hearts. God, let us chew on that for a moment. Let us drink it in. As we take communion, Lord, we honor you. We say thank you for your work on the cross. We say, God, may this life be all about you and not about me. And Lord, would you continue to bring redemption in those dark Haman-like places so that, God, we find the freedom that only you can give. It's in Jesus' name we all say together. Amen. Ushers, would you come and serve us? Communion is our response to the sacrifice of Christ. If you've received it, then come and take communion with glad and generous hearts. You trust in Jesus, you believe in Jesus, then walk in Jesus and join us as we feast on that wonderful work. Today, if you question maybe if that's real, it's okay. We're glad you're here. We want you to question that. We want you to let this stir on you today that God might come and this might be one of those ordinary ways where God shows his extraordinary love that you might be the recipient of his grace and mercy. Would you stand? Let's take communion and let's worship together.